You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. I am at a particular age in my life where I keep making the same New Year's resolutions every year. For the last 10, 15 years, I've made this resolution over and over again because I am failing miserably at this resolution. That resolution is to lose a little bit of weight and get a little more fit. And I keep making it because I have not lived up to it. But this year, as an academic and as a researcher, I said I'm going to take this very seriously and I'm going to research what it is that's out there now that is the best way to lose weight and get fit. So I went online, I did thorough research and found that the most effective way of losing weight and getting fit in our society right now is something called CrossFit or P90X or something to that effect. And I, I haven't done it, of course. I don't even, I don't even know what it involves. But I do like the philosophy behind CrossFit. The philosophy is one that I really resonate with. The philosophy of CrossFit is something called muscle confusion, which is great because that's been my approach to exercise my entire life. And the way I've applied it is to not exercise for weeks and weeks and months and months. And when we go to the gym, my muscles are really confused why we're there because we, this is not what we normally do. So as I was learning about this exercise program of CrossFit, I was learning that CrossFit and uh, this idea of muscle confusion is really a, a way of disrupting the status quo. And that sometimes confusion and disruption in, in the area of physical health is not a bad thing. In fact, it could be a healthy thing to disrupt and confuse the status quo. So I was thinking if that's good for physical health, and you can get physical health by disrupting the status quo and with confusion and disruption, is it possible that that's the way we also engage in spiritual growth and spiritual health? That sometimes our spiritual lives need a little bit of confusion and a little bit of disruption. Uh, this is echoed in the works of Richard Sennett, who writes in Flesh and Stone, that uh, why else would we ever want to change unless we experience a disturbed sense of ourselves, a disruption, or a confusion? And so I want to talk today about what it means to have that kind of disturbed disruption and confusion, and how that actually might be an important practice for spiritual growth. Now, I frame this in the context of my, my book that just came out last year, uh, Prophetic Lament, which is a commentary on the book of Lamentations. I spent five years working on the book. My wife said, you're going to sell five copies because nobody wants a book on Lamentations. How many of you have ever heard a sermon series on the book of Lamentations? That's about right. Zero. None of you in this room have heard an entire sermon series or done maybe a book study or a Sunday school class on the book of Lamentations. This is not a popular book of the Bible. And it's not just the teachings on Lamentations or even the laments uh, in the Psalms, but not just the teaching and the Sunday schools and the Bible studies and the preaching, but we don't have lament in our worship life. That the worship life of the American church in particular is missing the important discipline and practice of lament. Uh, Denise Hopkins, she teaches at Wesley Seminary in Washington, D.C. She did a study of the six major liturgical traditions in the United States. Uh, the Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, Lutherans, the Methodists, etc. And these denominations use a liturgical guide to guide their worship life. So there's a particular passage you're supposed to preach on in a particular week. There are particular psalms that are read in rotation throughout the year. Even suggestions on what hymns are appropriate for these, uh, for these worship services. 
services. Now, if you follow that liturgy, you actually will encounter some songs of lament and psalms of lament and teaching on lament. But what Hopkins notes is that even if you are kind of guided by these liturgical guidelines of what to preach and what to sing, when they get to the psalms of lament or the book of lamentations, churches just kind of skip over it and replace the lament psalms with happier songs or replace the lament hymns with happier hymns. And so in the liturgical tradition, there is even there the absence of engagement with lament. A similar study done was done by Glenn Pemberton, and Pemberton was looking uh, at uh, 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 traditional worship uh, in the Presbyterian and Baptist traditions. And so he was looking at the hymnals, and he said, in the hymnals, what percentage of our hymns are lament hymns? Now in the Bible, as we know, in the 150 Psalms, which operated very much like the hymnals for the people of Israel, of the 150 Psalms, 60% of those hymns, 60% of those Psalms are Psalms of celebration or praise that rejoice at all the good things that God has done. But 40% of the Psalms, the 150 Psalms, are Psalms of lament, Psalms about suffering and struggle and pain. But what Pemberton found was that even though 40% of the worship life of Israel engaged in the Psalms of Lament, that in the typical Baptist and Presbyterian hymnal, only about 15% of the hymns in those hymnals would qualify as Lament. And again, that's just what's in the books, not necessarily what we typically sing on a Sunday. So I decided to measure this up against the CCLI list. How many of you know what CCLI is? Um, your subliminal messaging is not working well. Because every time you portray, uh, project a contemporary Christian worship song, at the very bottom you'll see CCLI number, and then like a six, seven, eight digit number. And that gives this church the licensing rights to project the worship songs that somebody had written. Now at the end of the month or at the end of the year, you're supposed to keep a record of all the songs that you sang, contemporary worship songs, that you, y'all knew that, right? You, that you project onto the screen, they make a list and they send it in to CCLI, and then they keep a track of all the worship songs, the contemporary worship songs, that are sung in a typical Sunday throughout the United States. And every year they produce the top 100 most popular contemporary Christian worship songs. Now, how many of you say, as I research this, how many of you say that just like the hymns in the Bible, the Psalms, 40% of our top 100 contemporary worship songs are hymns and songs of lament? How about 25%? How about 15%? How about 10%? I think about 5 to 10 out of the top 100 worship, contemporary worship songs would be songs of lament. And I'm using the word lament in the most generous categories I can imagine. The song starts off, I cry out. Finally, finally, a lament hymn and lament song. The rest of the song is, I cry out for joy. No, I still need to count it. There's such a pathetic number of lament songs. We just need to pad the numbers somehow. So we have a very low number of laments that we engage in our scripture study, in our sermons, in our Sunday schools, and then also in our worship life where we skip over the psalms of lament and we don't engage in the hymns and songs of lament. There is an absence of lament as a practice in the church, particularly in the West, and I would argue particularly in the United States. So what's missing then? What do we miss when there is the absence of lament? Well, one of the problems then is that we have an exceptionalism and a triumphalism that keeps coming up in the American church that we do not know how to confront. 
So we think that everything is supposed to have quick and easy answers because the absence of lament leads us to think that things are resolved very quickly when actually in the Bible, staying in lament is an important part of understanding the restoration and hope that comes later. So there is this absence of lament in the church and a lot of that is driven by our exceptionalistic, triumphalistic attitudes, particularly in the American church. Well, I want us to take us through the book of Lamentations and the context of Lamentations and why Lamentations might offer that very important corrective and a spiritual practice that is missing in our church right now. Uh, Lamentations chapter 1, verses 1 through following. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she who was once great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Verse 2. Bitterly she weeps at night, tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers there is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. Verse 3, after affliction and harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile, and she dwells among the nations. She finds no resting place, and all who pursue her have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. Verses 1 through 3, but 3 points out the reality of the situation in the nation of Israel at this time. Israel, once a great nation under King David and King Solomon, a military power and an economic power. And a symbol of that power was usually evidenced by the city of Jerusalem, the capital city, and particularly the temple itself, which was filled with gold, silver, precious metal, and precious stones, and was kind of the crown jewel of the nation of Israel, a symbol of their chosen nation status. Uh, people would come from miles and miles to see this amazing structure. And so Israel, at one point, uh, in the worship of God and in and, and this great temple, was considered a great power, a great nation. But what happens is that the subsequent kings, following David and Solomon, uh, lead Israel astray. And so instead of worshiping Yahweh at the temple, they start worshiping other gods and idols and enter into this moment of severe disobedience against God over and over again, generation after generation. And God is patient, but at, the, at, at a moment in history, he says he needs to punish Israel for their disobedience and for their idolatry. And so what happens is God sends the Assyrians from the north to wipe out the northern kingdom, and then the Babylonians come and wipe out the southern part of the country, and then eventually all that's left is Jerusalem. The Babylonians lay siege to Jerusalem, and eventually Jerusalem, the capital city, the holy city of God, the city of David, falls to the, uh, the conquerors, Babylonian conquerors. So the Babylonians are really upset. They're angry that Jerusalem held out. So they say, we're going to make sure that Jerusalem can never rise up again. So first thing they do is they burn all the fields and crops, and then they salt the fields so nothing will grow in those lands again. They turn a land flowing with milk and honey into a barren desert land. And then, in order to make sure that Israel and Jerusalem never recover as a superpower, they take the able-bodied, the prophets, the priests, the kings, the leaders, the intellectuals, those who could read or write, anybody they deemed as worthy of being able to rebuild that society, they take and send away into exile into Babylon. And of course, most of us know that story of Daniel and his friends are among that group of those who they said, these people have the capacity to rebuild Jerusalem. We're sending them out of Jerusalem and away from the promised land into Babylon. So the only ones left after the fall of Jerusalem and after the exile are the women, the children, the sick, the blind, the lame, the, the elderly, those who have no chance in the mind of the Babylonians of ever rebuilding that society. Widows and orphans are the ones that are left behind in the city of Jerusalem. 
So in this context, you have a people that are completely defeated. They've lost their homeland. They've lost their identity. They've lost any hope that they could ever rebuild their city. And they're sent away into exile. And the ones that remain feel weak and defeated, suffering and impoverished and without any hope of rebuilding the world around them. Now, into this broken, complicated, confusing, defeated context, there are three options that the people of God could engage in. Three different ways they could respond to what's going on in the world around them, this fallen and broken world. The first option is to disengage and run away and hide. Babylon has defeated us. There's nothing more we can do. We are no longer God's chosen people. So let's just run away and hide. We give up. We give up, we give up and we're not going to do anything anymore. We're going to disengage from the world around us. We're going to give up. That's option number one. Uh, option number two is to say, well, the Babylonians defeated us, so we might as well give in. We'll do what they do. We'll act like they act. We'll follow their gods and their pagan practices. So the option one is give up. Option two is give in. And the option we're going to push us towards is the option actually of lament, which puts trust not only not in their own power or in the power of Babylon, but puts trust in the sovereignty of Yahweh, in the power of God. I'm not going to be able to get to the second example, but we're going to talk about the first option and the third option of how we might respond to change and challenges and suffering that is in the world. That first option of running away and hiding, God challenges in Jeremiah 29 verses 4 and following. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And he says, build houses, settle down, marry and have children and give their children, give those children away in marriage so that they too may have children. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Verse seven. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile, Babylon. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, verse 7, you have to understand, is, is, is just kind of coming out of the blue, it seems. Because almost every other time in the Bible, every time you hear the phrase, seek the peace of a city, what city are you supposed to seek the peace of? Seek the peace of? Jerusalem. Over and over and over again, 99.98% of the time, the Bible says, seek the peace of Jerusalem. So in this passage, when Yahweh says to his people, not seek the peace of Jerusalem, which is what they're expecting. That makes sense. We're going to go back home. We're going to rebuild Jerusalem. He doesn't say that. He says, not seek the peace of Jerusalem, but seek the peace of Babylon. Of all the places to seek the peace of. Jerusalem, of course, it's God's city, it's David's city, it's the city of God's peace, it's the heavenly place. But Babylon? That's the center of everything that's wrong with the world. It's the center of pagan worship. It's the city of Satan, not the city of God. Why are we supposed to seek the peace of all places? Babylon. Because even if you are in the midst of the greatest wickedness you've ever seen, even if you're at a place that you feel has no hope for redemption, even if you feel like you're in the middle of the worst place imaginable or the most broken, sinful place imaginable, even then, God says, you do not have the option of running away and hiding. 
Even if you're in the midst of Babylon, the most broken place in the world, you as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, as a follower of God, we do not have that option of running away and hiding when difficult circumstances and changes occur. That is not on the option list for us as followers of Jesus. We do not have the option of running away and hiding when difficult circumstances come. Now, I raise this because the history of the church in America, at certain moments, we have seen churches actually run away and hide when difficult circumstances come. When changes occurred in the world around them, many Christians have said, we don't want to deal with that change, and we want to run away and hide. The example goes back to the early part of uh, American history. When John Winthrop, the first governor of Massachusetts, pulls up to the Massachusetts Bay and he sees what will eventually become the great city of Boston. And you know some of the wording here. He says, I envision a city set on a hill. He's taking biblical language and talking about these cities in America becoming cities set on a hill. Places where the light of the gospel, the Christian witness, will go forth from these urban centers like Boston, New York, and Philadelphia. So there was a self-perception of these cities as New Jerusalems and as Zion's, the light of the gospel going forth. That's why one of the major streets in uh, the city of Boston is Beacon Street. One of the major neighborhoods in the city of Boston is Beacon Hill. Because there was this self-perception, we're going to be the light and our cities are going to be the centers of the gospel and the light that goes out into the world. And so this perception of America and American cities as Jerusalem sustains from the 16th to the 17th and even into the 18th and even well into the 19th century. But in the 19th century, the narrative of the city shifts from Jerusalem to Babylon because the cities begin to change in the 19th and 20th century. The first change occurs when immigrants come into the U.S. no longer just from Western Europe, such as Angli uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, or Northern Europe, such as Scandinavian Protestants or German Protestants, but now they start coming in from Southern Europe and Eastern Europe. And they are Italian Catholics, Greek Orthodox, Eastern European Jews. And the cities which had been the stronghold of European Protestantism or white Anglo-Saxon Protestantism now all of a sudden had Catholics and Jews and Orthodox and Eastern and Southern Europeans moving into these neighborhoods. And the narrative changes from cities as Jerusalem to cities as Babylon. In fact, one of the journals, uh, denominational journals, writes in the 19th century, our cities have become caves of rum and Romanism. So the cities are no longer safe places for white Protestants. They are now caves of rum and Romanism. And this occurs very much in the 19th and into the 20th century. But even a, more of a factor was in the 19th through the 20th century was not immigration, but the Great Migration. And this is the movement of African Americans from the southern states into the northern cities like Chicago, Detroit, Baltimore, Philadelphia, etc. So after the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation, when African Americans are freed from slavery, there is within a generation a massive conversion to Christianity. We're talking about anywhere from 80 to 90% of African Americans within one generation after the Civil War committing to Christian faith, becoming part of a church, and there is a massive growth of churches now that they've been freed from slavery. 
And it is those individuals who have seen no future in the South except to go back to the plantation. Uh, they start to move and migrate towards the northern cities. So African Americans in the 19th and 20th century move in huge numbers from the Mississippi Delta into the urban centers of the North and the Northeast. And they are bringing with them a very deep Christian faith. They are Christians who have committed to denominations, so they come and they start holiness churches, Baptist churches, AME churches. All these churches began to grow in these urban centers. In fact, the very first mega churches in the United States was not Willow Creek, was not Saddleback, it was not even University Presbyterian Church. The very first mega churches in the U.S. were African American churches at the turn of the century in places like Chicago and Detroit. Churches of several thousand when these cities weren't even that large. Detroit had a church of 10,000 members at a time when Detroit wasn't even that big of a city. We're talking about spiritual renewal and revival as African Americans move from the South into these urban centers, planting churches everywhere, starting ministries everywhere. So this was a Christian revival that was happening in the cities. But white Protestants in the cities did not see this as a good thing. They saw this as a change in their cities. They began to say that, hey, our streets aren't safe anymore. Our schools are not good anymore. Our real estate prices are dropping. So even as African-American Christians was bringing renewal and revival into urban centers, white Christians said, we don't like what's happening in the world around us. We're going to run away and hide where? In the suburbs. We're going to move churches out into the suburbs. We're going to start new buildings out into the suburbs. In fact, there's an interesting number. In 1945, only $20 million were spent on new buildings in the United States. But from 45 to 60, when there's this massive great migration, but also white flight, by 1960, $1 billion were being spent on new buildings. It jumps from $20 million in 1945 to $1 billion spent on new buildings. Why? Because white Protestants were leaving the city, moving to the suburbs, and building new buildings in the suburbs. That's why the amount of money spent on buildings skyrockets in a 15-year time period. Now, what's interesting is the type of church buildings that are built when people move out into the suburbs. We can show the slide here. Of a typical church building built in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and even into the 1970s. How many of you have seen church sanctuaries that look like this, a little bit of a slanted roof and an arch on the side. Very common form of architecture, particularly built in the mid-century of the 20th century, and uh, especially in the Midwest. Now, I was at a church in the East Coast, in a cold weather state, and it was February, and our church was dedicating a building, a sanctuary that looked like this. I'm about 10, 11 years old, and even I knew as a 10-year-old, this is a really stupid idea for a building. This is just not a smart idea to build a sanctuary that looks like this in a cold weather state. Now, you don't mind now know this in Seattle, but in a cold weather state, you have heating vents on the floor, and in the middle of February, when this building was being dedicated, they turned the heat up, but where does all the heat go in a building like that? Right up into the rafters. And you literally have the frozen chosen on the ground, and all the heat up into rafters. Now, then you have to figure out a way to get the warm air back down onto the floor. You build ceiling fans to push the warm air back down. And now charismatics can never worship with you because when they raise their hands in worship, they're hitting the ceiling fans. So you end up with a form of architecture that makes no sense whatsoever. 
It is making, so I'm asking the question, why was the church building built this way? And I was thinking in my head as a 10-year-old, whose stupid idea was to build a sanctuary that looks like this? The next thing that happens is the senior pastor gets up and he says, it was my idea to build the sanctuary to look like this. And he explains why. He says, imagine this building turned upside down. And what do you see? He says, you are looking at the bottom of a ship. A really large ship, a big boat. Now, where in the Bible do you learn about a really, really big ship, a really big boat? Yes, the story of Noah's Ark. You remember the story of Noah's Ark, right? So the world out there is evil. It's changing. We don't like what's going on out there. So we're going to hide out in Noah's Ark where we have a little version of the world that's safe for our kind of people. So if the world out there has secular art, we're going to have Christian art. If the world has secular music, we're going to have mediocre Christian music. If the world out there has secular t-shirts, we'll have Christian t-shirts, secular coloring books, Christian coloring books, secular underwear, Christian underwear, secular this, Christian that. You will figure out something to make something Christian out of the world out there, and now you are safe in Noah's Ark. Now, how do you do evangelism for Noah's Ark? Well, very poorly. So here's how you do evangelism for Noah's Ark. You see Uncle Joe floating by. Uncle Joe is family. We love Uncle Joe. Let's throw out a raft to him and make sure he gets on this ark. Joe, we're so glad you're here. We love you. You're going to fit right in because you like the foods we like. You like the music we like. You like doing all the same things that we do. We are so glad you're here with us, Uncle Joe. Now, a neighbor floats by. And he's a new neighbor, and he looks different from you. And he borrowed a mower from you last week and didn't return it. So now you're thinking, oh, wait a minute. I don't know if there's room on this ark for my neighbor. Uh, you know, and, and if he comes on this ark, he's going to want to sing different songs than we sing. He's going to clap to a different rhythm. The foods that we have, I hope he has his own gochujang or sriracha sauce with him because we don't have that kind of food on this ship. We're going to have to go out and get these kinds of foods for him. And he's just not going to fit in here. He looks different. He talks different. He has a different culture. Maybe there's an ark down the street that fits more of his kind of people. And we let him float away to another ark that we hope is down the street. And so when you develop this idea of your church as an ark, and you're safe here because everything looks familiar to you, then what you've done is you've said to the world, we don't care about you. We're going to run away and hide in Noah's ark. And Jeremiah 29 does not give you that option. You are not allowed to run away and hide. You are not allowed to run away when things around you change. And let me bring this into the 21st century. Because things are changing in our world yet again. Not just their cities are becoming diverse, but our entire nation is becoming extraordinarily diverse. And that change, is that does that mean we're going to run away and hide once again? Or are we going to see the hand of God in the middle of these changes? Let me walk you through some of the changes that have occurred. Prior to 1965, there were very strict guidelines and restrictions on immigration. In fact, there were very blatant laws that said we don't want certain types of people. The first of these laws was something called the Chinese Exclusion Act. Can anybody guess what that did? Yeah, they weren't hiding what they were trying to do there. It excluded Chinese people. It was pretty straightforward. We have a Chinese Exclusion Act to exclude Chinese people. Pretty straightforward. That's how blatant it was. We don't want certain people in our country. 
Prior to 1965, most of that immigration comes from Europe. And we don't want Asians. We don't want Africans. We don't want Latin Americans. These are not our kind of people. We want immigration from Europe. The change in laws in 1965 was not so much a dramatic increase in the number of immigrants. That's a, that's a false notion. The, the number of immigrants is not like out of control and it, it isn't going through the roof. There's still a limitation on the number of immigrants. The change in 1965 is that the distribution of who comes into the U.S. changes. So prior to 65, mostly European. Post-1965, the change is not in the number of immigrants necessarily, but it is actually more the, the inclusion of Asian immigration, African immigration, and most noticeably Latin American and South American and Central American immigration. So that's the major change that occurs in 1965. So with that change comes the influx from 1965 to the present day of non-European immigrants. And they're coming in legally, they're coming in through the system, and they stay in the system. And so that that immigration has changed the population by 2008. A third of the entire U.S. population is now already of non-white, non-European descent. That's a major threshold that we crossed. By the way, that number is much higher in urban centers like Seattle and L.A. and Chicago and, uh, and New York and Houston. Those numbers are already through the roof. They're past the 50% threshold. But in the U.S., we already passed the threshold where a third of our country is of non-European, non-white descent. Another major threshold in 2011, huge number, 2011, five years ago, the birth rate in America crossed the threshold. So that half of all the births in the U.S. are now not of non-European, non-white descent. And that number is only going up higher and higher and higher and higher. One of the fastest growing racial identification is multiracial and biracial. And so now we're having a number that shows by 2011 and then going up, upwards and upwards where consistently, and it's not going backwards, the majority of Americans born on American soil are of non-European descent. That number, of course, logically leads to 2023, where if children are born, they become older children. And by 2023, six years from now, the majority of all children in America will be of non-European, non-white descent. And that leads again, inevitably, to 2042, where the majority of everybody in the United States, not just children, not just the birth rate, but everybody in the U.S., the majority will be of non-European descent. Those markers are huge, significant markers because they are related to one another. Because the birth rate is driving the diversity in America. It's actually not immigration, it's the birth rate. So the growth of the diversity in America is tied not to immigration patterns, but to birth rates. Meaning, no matter how big of a wall you think Mexico is going to build for us, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all what you do, because America will become a diverse nation no matter what you do with the immigration laws, because it's tied not to immigration patterns, but to birth rates. In other words, these changes are occurring all around us. Deal with it. And not just deal with it, rejoice that this is actually the work of God. Now we can see these changes and it makes us uncomfortable and we don't like the neighbors that we have now because they're different looking than we are. Or we can say, God has brought the nations into our neighborhoods. 
Many of us who pray for missions, we prayed 40 years ago, 30 years ago for the fall of the communist bloc. You remember praying for that? Praying for the, for the gospel to go into the Soviet Union and Eastern communist bloc and into China. And you know what? God answered our prayer, didn't he? God answered the prayer. The, the wall fell, the, uh, the, the gospel went in, and in fact, right now, Communist China is poised to become the largest Christian nation in the world. Just in terms of sheer numbers, if it hasn't already happened, it is poised to become the largest single Christian nation in the world in terms of the number of Christians in that country. So God has answered all the prayers we lifted up praying for the communist bloc countries. Now when that curtain, iron curtain fell, what did we switch to praying for? We started praying in mission groups and mission gatherings. We started praying for, really, the Muslim world, for the Middle East, and asked for the gospel to go into the Middle East and to spread into the Muslim communities. That's been a real important focus of prayer for the Christian community for the last 25, 30 years. So I don't understand when God answers that prayer by bringing refugees, bringing Muslim neighbors into our community, how Christians can be at the forefront of trying to stop that from happening. God is answering our prayer. He's doing what we asked him to do, which is give us the open door to reach and preach the gospel to the Muslim community. And when he answers our prayer, we say we don't want it. So changes are occurring in the world around us. We can run away and hide from it in fear and in trepidation that something is not the way they were 10 years ago. Or we could say, thanks be to God, he's doing something amazing in answering our prayers, in bringing the nations right into our neighborhoods. So one of the concerns that came up is, as we get more immigrants into our nation, well, does that mean that there's a mosque there that wasn't there 10 years ago? And that's true. There's a mosque there that wasn't there 10 years ago. Is there a Buddhist temple that is in your neighborhood that wasn't there 30 years ago? You're right. There's a Buddhist temple there that was now there that wasn't there 30 years ago. But also during that time, with that one Buddhist temple, there were 25 Korean churches that started at about the same time, 20 Chinese churches that started about the same time, about 50 uh, storefront Spanish-speaking congregation that's started at the same time. So you worry about that one Buddhist temple and ignore all these Korean churches and Chinese churches and Spanish-speaking congregations. God is bringing revival to our nation spiritually. It's just in ways that we maybe aren't expecting. It's surprising us. Stephen Warner puts it this way, we are seeing in the 21st century not the de-Christianization of America, but the de-Europeanization of American Christianity. And we can say, this makes us nervous. We need to run away and hide. Or we can say, thanks be to God. How can we be part of the good work that God is doing in our neighborhoods and in our communities? We do not have the option of running away and hiding. Jeremiah 29 is very clear. You do not have the option of running away and hiding. We are called as God's people to see what God is doing and to engage and be a part of the work that God is doing. Uh, as I said, I'm not going to be able to get into the second part of Jeremiah, uh, which explains why we're not supposed to fix the problem for ourselves. But I want to offer in the last few minutes uh, how lamentation and lament is a pattern and discipline that should move us forward in dealing with change, dealing with conflict, dealing with difficult circumstances. The first aspect of Lamentations is that in Lamentations chapter 1, chapter 2, and in chapter 4, they are presented in the format of a funeral dirge. And so it is in response to Jerusalem having died, the people of God in the book of Lamentations responds to that crisis and difficulty. 
So the funeral dirge of Lamentations 1, 2, and 4 is different from a typical lament in the Psalms. A typical lament in the Psalms operates more like a hospital visit. A person is sick, you go to the hospital, you hold their hand, you pray with them, and you believe that they'll be out of the hospital tomorrow, the next week, but there is hope that that person is going to get better. That's your typical lament. You go there, you pray, and you hope that the person will get better the next day. That type of hospital visit lament is not the same of what we see in Lamentations, which is a funeral service. And you do not approach a funeral service the same way you approach a hospital visit. That would be a, a extraordinarily insensitive and inappropriate. Because in a hospital visit, you have a live body that you believe will get better. In a funeral dirge, in a funeral service, there is a dead body in the room. And you have to deal with the dead body in an appropriate way. I think one of the problems of the way we deal with injustice in our society, and I would argue particularly racial injustice, we think dealing with racial injustice is a quick and simple hospital visit. Just hold hands and sing kumbaya and give peace a chance and all the racial problems will go away because healing will come if we just hold hands and sing kumbaya. But racial injustice in America is not a hospital visit, it is a funeral service. Because our nation's history is littered with dead bodies around this issue. And those dead bodies are the bodies mostly of African American men and women. So we can't, it is an injustice to go to a community and say, well, we just want to hold hands and sing kumbaya and give peace a chance and we'll be done with our racial injustice. When actually they're saying there is a history of dead bodies in our community. Dead bodies that were forced onto slave ships. Dead bodies that were thrown overboard and, and eaten by sharks. Dead bodies and bodies that were brought to the plantation. Bodies that were abused and physically assaulted. Bodies of women that were sexually abused and raped on the plantations. Bodies of men whose bodies hung like strange fruit in the trees of the south. Bodies of four young black girls' bodies blown up in a church in Birmingham, Alabama. Bodies of young children attacked by dogs and fire hoses. Bodies of young men shot down in our city streets. Our history is littered with the dead bodies of black men and black women. And if we ignore that and pretend just a quick hospital visit is going to fix it, we don't understand the depth of lament that is needed in order to deal with racial injustice. Lamentations requires an understanding of a funeral service rather than a simple hospital visit. The second aspect of Lamentations that I would challenge is that in the book of Lamentations, you hear all the voices that allows us to engage this whole narrative of lament. Uh, the question always comes up about who wrote the book of Lamentations. Now, in, in just kind of logic, Jeremiah might be the only actual candidate to have written the book. Remember I mentioned that those who could read or write, those who were intellectuals, other prophets and priests, they were all sent into exile. Jeremiah was believed to be on the side of the Babylonians. He was actually allowed to stay. So he's probably one of the very few candidates who could read or write, who could actually write the book of Lamentations. But one of the most interesting things is that if you study in the Hebrew, the Jer book of Jeremiah, and compare that in writing style to the book of Lamentations, it feels like two different people wrote it. So there's a challenge to, could Jeremiah have written this when the two writing styles are so markedly different? 
Well, what I argue is that Jeremiah did write it as one of the very few people, but he's not writing from his own perspective. He's writing from the perspective of those that have suffered in Jerusalem. Picture it this way. The city has fallen. The, the whole city has been destroyed and devastated. Jeremiah is one of the few who can read and write, who is going to the city square to meet up with all those. And out of the houses and out of the burnt out buildings come these women and children who have suffered the most. They have been the most disenfranchised, marginalized. They have suffered the most because of the siege. They have lost their husbands and fathers and, and elders. They're all gone. And so Jeremiah listens to their story and writes down their story. So Lamentations, I argue, is one of the most feminine books of the Bible because it's not Jeremiah's voice, but he's reflecting the voice of the suffering women in the city of Jerusalem at that time. A couple of things that I'll raise as a challenge to you. One of those issues is that the American, particularly evangelical church, has done a terrible, awful, even sinful way of raising up, of failing to raise up women's voices in our church. We have failed miserably in this. We have done a poor job of raising up the voices of women. And Lamentations challenges us that in the times of suffering, we don't need to hear another privileged voice. We might need to hear the voices of the suffering. We might need to hear the voices that have been previously marginalized and left out. And I would argue particularly voices of women that have much to say about a suffering world. How are we as a community, as a Christian community, raising up voices of women that have much to say about the suffering that is in the world? I, I speak to this because um, my, my mom is, is my spiritual hero. Uh, she was a, um, I grew up in a single parent home. My, my dad left our family and as a, as an immigrant parent, she had to raise four kids by herself, uh, with limited language skills and limited, uh, uh work skills. Uh, so she took the jobs that she could take. So from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m., she worked in an inner city carryout. And it was one of those places where that sold food to the uh, inner city neighborhood, but they had bulletproof glass all along the front, the plexiglass, to make sure because there were so many shootings in that neighborhood. And so she worked behind the counter and passed the money and food back and forth through a, a little glass uh, uh, Lazy Susan that would pass the money back and forth. So she worked from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. in this inner city neighborhood under the threat of violence at all times and just in a neighborhood that was not safe for her. But then after she would work that 12-hour shift in that inner city uh, uh, um, uh, carryout, she would go to work an evening shift. And from 11 p.m. to 6 or 7 a.m., she would work that evening shift uh, as a nurse's aide in a nursing home and change the bedpans and be on call for emergency situations. She would stay up all night caring for the elderly in that senior citizen home. And then at 6 or 7 o'clock when her shift would end, she would rush home, make breakfast for her kids so that her kids could go off to school. She would sleep two hours and then rush back to her day job. She worked 20 hours a day, six days a week, and she did this for years and years and years to try to keep her family together to try to survive as a family. On Sunday, she set an example for us, and she would never work on Sunday, but she actually would. She would go to church and help make lunches and dinners for the for the family members in the, in the church and for the pastors and elders of the church. But she set an example and says, Sunday is set aside for the worship of God. But 20 hours a day, six days a week, she was trying to keep her family together. But she was also a, a testimony of spiritual faith, uh, she's now 85, but about 20 years ago, she showed me the condition of her knees. 
And most of us have one kneecap on each knee. She has five kneecaps on each knee. Why? Because when you kneel to pray on a hardwood floor an hour or two a day, every day, for decade after decade, your knees can't handle that kind of pressure. So her kneecaps cracked. And now when she kneels, her kneecaps conform to the shape of the floor so that she's able to pray on her knees because her kneecaps spit open and now they're able to conform to the shape of the floor. That only happens when you pray on your knees an hour or two a day for decade after decade after decade. And what stuns me about American Christianity right now is that if you go to the evangelical conferences and denominational gathering, we all want to hear from the hotshot 29-year-old pastor who's got the funky facial hair and skinny jeans and looks really cool standing up there talking about all the hip things that he's doing in the church. And we're always spending money to hear from these individuals who are the hotshots of our Christian industry when actually we should just be on our knees like my mom has been for her entire life. We should be honoring the mothers and the grandmothers who have sacrificed their whole bodies and their whole beings and their whole spiritual lives for the sake of those in their family and for the sake of the church. We need to hear from all of the voices in our communities, not just the privileged, not just the educated, but all of the voices from our community, we need to sit and learn from the mothers, the grandmothers, the grandfathers who have sacrificed so much for the sake of the kingdom of God. Lament is a practice that has been lost in our society. It has been lost in the church in the United States. Can we as God's people say we desperately need this disruption, this holy confusion in our lives, and embrace that confusion and disruption when it comes to enter into that lost practice of lament? Lord, we are thankful that you have blessed us with so much, maybe more than our deeds deserve, but we also are aware that we are missing things in our lives. We are missing the discipline of lament, the practice of lament. So I pray a difficult prayer that our Christian communities throughout the United States would learn what it means to lament before you as broken people, to hear the voices, the narratives, the stories of immigrant communities, of, of, of impoverished communities, of suffering communities, and to hear those voices and lament alongside them. Lord, teach us what it means to have our hearts broken by the things that break the heart of God, to know what it means to know the heart of God, and to weep and wail alongside prophets like Jeremiah. Help us, Lord, and teach us what it means to lament. For we pray this in your name. Let the church say, Amen. For more UPC audio, or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.